Can you believe it? I finally made it. The crowds, the crowds have been so large that I never really got to hear his voice myself. I, I just only heard someone tell me their version of what they heard and what they saw. It was incredible what I heard. His words, well, if, if they were really his words, his words, they were the words of life. And what they said he did, the miracles, I don't even have words for those. For days I've been trying to get close enough to, to see him and hear him myself. And I can't believe I did it. I was one of about 60 or 70 people in this one-room house. Jesus was there. He, he came in and he sat down and he began to talk. And his opening words got interrupted with my luck. Some guy ran in and he was whispering in his ear and I was close enough to hear what he said. He whispered in his ear, he said, Jesus, it was almost unbelievable. He said, Jesus, your mom wants to talk with you outside. And I, I sensed a little bit of tone of frustration with him. I mean, wouldn't you feel frustrated too? He kind of took a deep breath. And he said to each and every one of us, he looked us right in the eyes. I think he looked in my eyes and he said, my family are the ones who do the will of my father. And then he got up and he walked out. And I thought, great, this was my chance. And so I, got, I was aggressive. I, mean, I, I, I ran out of that house in front of the crowds and I, I ran as fast as I could to the shoreline because that's where I heard he was going to go. He got to the shoreline and the crowds just started to... To, to push in on him, and, and, and he couldn't go back any further because the water was behind him. And so the disciples brought a boat, and they all got in the boat, and they paddled out about 20 yards. And Jesus, he's, he was standing, and then he sat down, and he said these words. A farmer went out to sow his seed. We're beginning a new sermon series today entitled Epic. It's all about the story of God and how your story fits in God's story. But I, I, I kind of wanted to know, how many of you have ever started a garden from seed at your yard? Just, okay, good. You probably went to um, Lowe's or Home Depot or Osh and got a packet of seeds, right? And then you prepared the soil and put fertilizer in there and took out the weeds and the rocks and all of that and you laid it all out and then you got your packet of seeds and you, you probably tore just a corner off of it and what did you do? Just, just think in your mind, when you, when you sowed that seed, what did, that, what did you as an urban farmer do? You probably got your finger and you stuck it in the soil, right, to make a hole or you got a trowel and then you sort of put a few seeds in there, and then you patted it, 
and then watered it, right? Probably. You went to the next area, you put a, and then you, and then you patted it, and then you watered it. Well, when Jesus says a farmer went to sow a seed, the farmer was doing this. He had a pack of seeds, not a little envelope of seeds where he tore the corner out. The farmer was just walking along the field, and he'd reach into his seed bag, and then he'd throw seeds, right? And, and, and he wasn't going and putting his little finger in a hole and dropping a couple seeds in and patting it and watering it and hoping and praying that that would grow into a radish or something like that, right? He reached into his bag, and he just threw seed. And he just kept on throwing seed, and wherever it landed, it went. And that's where it all went. And he just kept on throwing seed. And so Jesus says, A farmer went out to sow seed, and everyone listened. And he was scattering the seed. And some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it all up. And some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil, and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they didn't have any root. And other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and it choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred and sixty and thirty times that was sown. And then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And then the disciples came to Jesus And they said, Jesus, why do you tell stories? Why do you tell stories? Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We'll start in verse 10. We're just going to go to verse 15 today. We'll cover some more a little bit later. But I have a question for you as you're turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. We'll go to verse 15 today. And my question is this for you. What's your favorite story? Now, I know we're in church, and so think, if some of you are thinking, what's that Bible story we just read? And if that's your favorite story, great. But really, let's get real here. What's your favorite story? Anybody? Go ahead. You can talk back. What's your favorite story? Gone with the Wind. Thank you. Anybody else? What's that? Les Miserables, one of my favorites also. Anybody else? What's that? Okay, I've never heard of that one before, but I, I, I trust you, Mike. Okay. All right. Anyone else? Little Women. Okay. One more. Star Wars. Okay. Good. These are favorite stories. Do you know that the Bible is anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters story. It's narrative. And the Bible's just not this diverse assortment of stories, because we think that way about the Bible sometimes. Maybe stories and commands. It's sort of like a how-to manual. 
But altogether, it comprises what we call a dominant story. The Bible's not written like a, a novel with a tight plot line. It contains many individual stories and a lot of non-narrative material. But, but just as J.R.R. Tolkien, he produced thousands of narratives and poetry and articles and even maps to tell over, over decades to tell one sort of grand story, God, the author of every part of the Bible, is also telling this overarching story about the real world he created. And there is a basic principle and basic plot line to which all the parts relate to one another, and it makes sense to all the pieces. Let's look at our text today, Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. Verse 10 begins, The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's calloused heart has become for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. And I would heal them. Let's talk about the effect of stories on people. And so in your notes there, you've, you're, they're in your program, what is the effect of God's story? First, uh, according to this text, on people far from God. What's the effect of stories on people far from God? The troubling aspect of our text today is that they seem to say, Jesus seems to say that stories or parables are somehow going to harden the hearts of people far from God. Now, since Jesus is quoting the Old Testament book of Isaiah, let's look back to that original context. So, in your notes here, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah the prophet is given a task by God, and verse 9 says, He said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing it but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, it sounds like Isaiah is sent by God to confuse a bunch of people. And so, by inference, are we to, are we to conclude that Jesus taught in parables, like he said, so that people might be kept from believing? No, not at all. That would go against all of what Jesus has been has been, has been sent to the earth for. Now, Isaiah didn't speak in riddles when he went to Israel. He spoke simply and plainly. Look at the critique here in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah. It says, Who is it he's trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? Is it like to children weaned from their milk and those just taken from the breast? For it is do this and do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. Isaiah was criticized. He was ridiculed 
because he spoke so plainly. And his critics said that he spoke so simply that even children could understand him. And to fulfill his purpose, Isaiah did not speak in code. He worked to speak with clarity. So it wasn't the people who didn't understand what Isaiah was saying. They understood, but they still turned away. And that kind of thing happens all the time to us today in our modern world. For instance, it's plain, and it's even written on that box that smoking is dangerous to your health. But you see people smoking all the time. It's clear that drinking and driving are deadly, but people still do it. It, It's apparent that a sedentary lifestyle is not good for your health, but this couch potato culture continues to grow, right? It's a well-known fact that seatbelts save lives. But how often do people get into cars without buckling up? See, God was telling Isaiah, go to a country that had become hardened to the truth of God and proclaim God's truth with clarity, with simplicity. And the people would let him speak, would let Isaiah speak, and they would never pay any attention to what he was saying. It would, it would be a very frustrating assignment if you were Isaiah. Now, Jesus is not saying that parables are making people unresponsive. It's their calloused hearts. It's their hardened hearts that are already unresponsive. The hardened refuse to listen, and that's why they, they have a hard time being brought to faith. Jesus spoke in parables to illuminate the truth, not to hide the truth. But just as people rejected the truth, they became even less able to understand it. It seems the more they resisted, the less sensitive they were to God's Spirit. I think some of us understand that real clear. This reminds me of a, of a story in my life about 15 years ago. I, I'm a graduate of North High School in Torrance. Go Saxons, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I'm a graduate of North High School in Torrance, and it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of funny to me because I was sort of a misfit in high school. And, um, and so, um, I, I, I don't want to say this, but, but uh, I was a misfit in high school, but look at me now sort of a thing, you know? And uh, um, here, here I am, I'm a lead pastor of a, of a successful, healthy church in the city, in the same city, in Torrance, and... Um, uh, I was appointed by the city council to serve in the Parks and Recreation Commission, and then I'm, I've been a lead chaplain for the Torrance Police Department for many years. And so here's a, you know, here's a misfit that all this stuff good happened to, right? And so what a, what a great thing. And so uh, one day the student activities director um, uh, called me and said, would you speak at our graduation exercises? And I said, all right, okay, I'll do that. So I was excited to do that. They gave me some parameters. should be about 10 to 12 minutes long, 15 minutes long at the most. And then, could you speak as the police chaplain? And I said, sure. And so I put on my police uniform, my Class A uniform. I'm excited. Get down to the campus. We, we uh, uh, get greeted by some uh, um, administration people. The principal comes and is not really nice to me for some reason. Uh, just, just not nice. Um, high school principals tend to be like that. Sorry, Jaime. Uh, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, she, she just wasn't that nice to me. And I'm thinking, 
uh, wow, okay, no big deal. And so I, I go to the student activities director, and he's real nice, and he kind of remembers me because I always got in trouble in high school and says, okay, here, you'll sit here. So we're on this big high platform, and we're sitting facing the crowds, and there's a few thousand people out there. It's a big day. And next to me is sitting the senior class president, and she welcomes everybody and does a pledge of allegiance. And then next to her are some school board members and the student activities director. And next to me is the principal, the one that's not being real nice to me, okay? And so they're doing their thing, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and I have this, this great talk put together. And it kind of tells of my time at North High School and, and some of the things that happened that were memorable, and then, and then all these things that happened to me afterwards. And, and look what God did, basically, is the story. But I have this real important part right at the end where I'm talking about I'm searching for all these things in middle school, in high school, in college, and all of this, and, I'm, and I've, I finally fi- found it. It's it's about my relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that's my punchline to the whole talk. I'm super excited about it. And I'm thinking, this is, you know, a couple, few thousand people, they're going to get it. This is awesome. It's my story. They can't tell me not to do that. So I, it's my story. So I, I'm sitting there, and they're doing their thing, and the student activities director comes to the podium, and he starts to introduce me. So they're reading through my bio, and he's done this, and he's married and has a couple kids. And, you know, going through this whole thing, he says, so let's give a warm Saxon welcome to... And I'm, so I'm getting ready. I'm a little nervous. I got my notes. I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat getting ready to stand up. And the principal leans over to me, puts her hand on my leg, and says, whatever you do, don't say Jesus Christ. That's my whole talk. That's the punchline. That's, that's, that's it. That's the pinnacle of my talk. And then they say, welcome, Dean Maeda. And I'm just in a daze, you know. <laughs> What am I going to do now? So I stand up, I open my notes, and I, I, I just begin my talk. I have my notes. I'm doing my notes. I think it's going good. I, I really don't think it's going good. It's, I'm just in a daze, and I'm talking. I'm doing my thing. At the very end, I, I give this story that's coming to that place, and I'm thinking, oh, no, what am I going to say? I have no punchline, right? And so I get to that place, and then I say, and so I met somebody, and he changed my life forever and ever. I said, congratulations, graduates. What a great day this is. Um, thank you. And I sit back down. Everyone claps, and I'm thinking, wow, that was, that was not what I wanted. So I get my stuff together. Everyone's out at a reception. I get my stuff together, and my dad's with me. And he says, of course, that's, that was a good talk, son. You know, it was awesome and everything. He didn't say awesome, but he said it was a good talk, son. <laughs> so I got my briefcase, and I'm walking out, and the student activities director walks in, and he says, hey, there's a bunch of students and families that want to talk with you. They're just outside. Do you have some time for that? And I said, sure. So I walk outside. And okay, there's not a crowd of thousands, okay. But there's probably about 40 or 50 students and family waiting outside to talk with me. And I walk outside, and a bunch of them rush me and say, who was that that changed your life? And I said, well, it's Jesus Christ. And a couple of them said, I knew it! And they were high-fiving each other. And a couple of them were like, what? I thought it was someone you really met. I said, it was. And I told them all about it. And you know what's funny? That was about 15 years ago. I still, when I'm out in the community, this happened about four months ago. I was talking at a big luncheon. And a young woman came up to me and said, um, hi, I'm, and she told me her name. And I said, 
uh, oh, hi. And she says, I went to North High School. And I said, hey, so did I. And she says, I know. I'll never forget that talk you gave at graduation. And that will happen from time to time throughout the years. Some people's hearts are hardened, and so they're not going to hear the truth. And some people are ready to hear the truth, and they'll never forget it. There's also some other effects on, on God's story in your life, on your life, not just to those who are far from God, but on followers of Jesus, too. The stories of Jesus were for the same purpose as illustrations are in a sermon. They're designed to illuminate the truth, and this is what Jesus is doing. And, and there are stories in the Bible that teach powerfully, and I think you, you, you have heard about them if you don't actually know them. Think about how clear and powerful the messages of some of the stories in the Bible are. The prodigal son. Everyone kind of sees himself in the prodigal son's story. The good Samaritan. People remember that story. The man who was forgiven a great debt and yet refused to forgive a lesser debt. The parable of how the seed gets sown, right? Maybe you didn't really know what that was today, but if you got hit by a starburst candy... You, you'll, you'll remember that, at least for the afternoon, I, I think. These stories teach in powerful ways, and they make an impact. Eugene Peterson, he's the author of this book, The Contemplative Pastor. He's the editor of the Bible translation, The Message. He says this, Jesus continually threw odd stories down alongside ordinary lives and walked away without explanation or altar call. Then listeners started seeing connections, God connections, life connections, eternity connections. And the very lack of obviousness, the unlikeness, was a stimulus to perceiving likeness, God-likeness, and life-likeness, eternity-likeness. But the parable didn't do the work. It put the listener's imagination to work. Parables aren't illustrations that make things easier. They make things harder by requiring the exercise of our imaginations, which, if we aren't careful, becomes the exercise of our faith. You know, Jesus was not concerned just to give information to the disciples. He didn't want them just to take notes so that they can pass some test one day. Jesus wanted to impart life-changing truth to the disciples. So he did it through a combination of instruction, but a lot of story. So let's talk about this real quick, the lessons from God's story in your life. The first is this, as we hear God's story, do this. Number one, be aware of God's story in your life, in your life. Be aware as we're talking about what we're talked about today, how does it, how does it apply What's going on in your life as it relates to God's story? Be aware of it. Maybe you want to write, listen to it, or identify it, or acknowledge it. And what we're talking about is God's not trying to make a relationship with him more difficult for us. He is trying to help us understand our life story and how it comes together with God's story. And the more you know and understand and share God's story, the more your life story is going to make sense. Now, does this mean that all of life will make sense? It, it won't. These are the, there are circumstances that, that sort of trouble us and confuse us and baffle us. Like when someone we love dearly dies and even dies suddenly. That just confuses us. When 
a relationship that, that, that we're really invested in has a conflict or a breakup. It just confuses us. When unexpected expenses come into our life like a tidal wave, it, it, we think, God, what's going on here, right? When illnesses that allow someone to actually exist, like breathe in and out in their heartbeats, but they, they really can't enjoy life, we get confused when something like that happens. When there's evil people all around us, that, it, it's kind of confusing to us. But be aware of God's story in your life. Isaiah chapter 55, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's got, God's got it. He's got you. And we don't quite understand all the time in this life. Second lesson we can, we can bring from this is this. Respond to what you do understand. If you don't understand everything in your life and it's kind of confusing, there are things that you do understand. Well, respond to those. Obey those. As you read the Bible, obey these things. Maybe you need to stop something or maybe you need to start something. Maybe you need to rest or maybe you need to work harder. But respond to what you do understand. And the only sure way of fighting off spiritual hardness or callousness, what Jesus and Isaiah were talking about, is to respond to what's clear in the Bible in your life. So step by step, we, we, we follow a plan for our lives. We learn to trust in God rather than worry all the time. We learn to forgive rather than resent. We learn to tell the truth rather than exaggerate the truth. So we give rather than think about accumulating for ourselves, and we serve rather than be demanding, and we laugh rather than grumble and complain. Be patient. Know God's story. Watch it unfold in your life. When you know God's story and see your life as a clear part of it, then you'll be compelled to share God's story and your life story. So, there is one dominant story. It's the story of God. It'll ultimately find, all stories will ultimately find their place in God's story and finally be complete. And there are four distinct movements of God's story. They're written on the cover of your worship folder there. The four distinct movements. I'm going to talk to you about all of God's story in about three minutes. The first movement is creation. The Bible begins with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, making the world very good, without corruption, decay, and without death that dominates our world today. And he placed human beings in this world as his masterpiece and made into, in the image of God and to reflect his glory. But something happened that we call the fall. That's the second movement here. Instead of living for God and loving our neighbor, we turned away to live self-centered lives. And because our relationship with God has been broken, all other relationships, relationships with other human beings, relationship with ourselves, and a relationship with God is also imperfect. It, it, we're, we're in need of grace. And then the third movement is redemption. Since humanity rebelled and were turned over to the rebellion by God. God is the only one who can rescue us from our rebellious state and the punishment that we justly deserve. God spoke to the prophets in the Old Testament of a rescuer who would one day come. And, 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 and this rescuer would come to live this perfect life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we deserve. 
And, and he would rise from the dead, overcoming sin and sin's penalty, which is death, ultimately satisfying the righteous requirement of God for us by purchasing for God a people set apart for his work and worship. The rescuer and redeemer is the person of Jesus Christ. And there is no other hope, none, but being rescued and redeemed by God and from God's righteous judgment outside the work of Jesus Christ. And the last movement in God's story is restoration. The plan of God doesn't end with redemption by God. But God creates a new heaven and a new earth where sin and death and destruction is all removed. And peace and love defines how we relate to one another and how we relate to God. And while we wait in hope, in anticipation and in hope for him to return to complete this final work, he calls all of us, people of God, to participate with him, bringing about healing and restoration as a foretaste of what this new heaven and new earth is going to be all about. So wherever people are living in submission to Jesus in his ways, serving and sharing the gospel with others while empowered by the Spirit of God, restoration is being experienced. So our story is this. Every human being is found in this four-part storyline. And most people are not fully in line with the truth of the gospel story. And my hope is that our personal, our personal stories through this series, through this time, your, your story will line up with God's story. You know, the best and most compelling stories have high stakes, have amazing unexpected resolutions. And if that's the case, there's never been a greater story than God's story. The Bible, then, is not a collection of fables and fictional stories that are, give us insights on how to find God and how to live a good life. Rather, it's true history in a unified story of how God came to find us in the person of Jesus Christ. But the Bible is not, the Bible's not primarily about us in our story, and what we should do. The, it's first and foremost about Jesus and what he has done. So in anticipation for next week's sermon, we begin the first movement of God's story. We're going to talk about creation. In anticipation, the very beginning of God's story, I thought we'd play just a little game just to end, end my sermon here. Okay. How does your favorite story begin? I'm going to put an opening line of a, of a famous story, and then you tell me what that story, what the title of that is. First one. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Anybody? Got it. That's good. Okay. This one's going to be a little harder. Here it is. Where's Papa going with that axe? Charlotte's Web. That's right. That's very good. Very, very good. Okay. This one's harder, even harder. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. Anybody? Great Gatsby. Very nice. Very nice. North High School teacher. There, there it is. I think, I think you'll get this one, right? Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Yeah, okay, the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. It wasn't real clear, but I think I got it. Okay. 
Okay, here we go. This is a hard one. <laughs> Your favorite story, Brandon, right? Star Wars. He said, I didn't know it started that way. Okay, anyways, how about this one? It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Anybody? Go ahead. Pride and prejudice. Yeah. How about this one? You'll know this one. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick. That's right. Okay, how about this? It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. 1984. Yeah. You'll get this one. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan. That's right. When he was nearly 13, my brother Jim got his arm badly broken at the elbow. That's right. That's right. To kill a mockingbird. Yeah. You can put that up. There it is. Good. Next week, we begin a story that, that you're going you're gonna to remember for the rest of your life. Not only that, it's really your story in the opening lines of this great story is this. What's that story? It's the Bible. It's the story of God. And so I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger because I'm just going to give you the first three words in the beginning, and we'll talk all about the rest of the story next week. Let's all stand for the benediction.